quick disclaimer, folks, before we start the episode, this is our last week on the SoundCloud main feed for the Hockey News. We're going to have our own feed going forward, so the links for those feeds will be found in the description of this episode, wherever you are listening to it or watching it. So last episode, um, that'll be on the SoundCloud main feed. Go to the other link for the future. All right, let's get to the episode now. Welcome back to another episode of the Hockey News on the A podcast. And for today's episode, we're pleased to be joined by one of my favorite follows on Twitter, especially when it comes to prospects, and that is Byron Bader, the creator of HockeyProspecting.com. Byron is a data scientist. He's located in the Calgary area. He's known in hockey circles for being the creator of HockeyProspecting.com, and he's also done some consulting for the Calgary Flames, the 2019 draft as well. Without further ado, Byron Bader. Byron, how are we doing? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Pretty well, pretty well. Uh, I mean, you know, all things considered, I'm just stoked to to get a couple of minutes to to pick your brain. We know a lot of the conversations we have on this show are kind of micro-focused, right? Because we'll have either a player or a coach or Patrick and I will be kind of talking about some of those little nuances and contexts, which are great. But what's awesome about your tool is that it really brings things from the macro perspective, with historical examples as well, and kind of, you know, maybe sometimes brings us pundits down to earth a bit with an idea of, of things and how they work. So let's just start out by this. In latent terms, what exactly is hockey prospecting, the, the model, and what's it all about, just for those that really don't know before we get underway here? So, I mean, yeah, what it does is it's it's basically taking these NHL equivalencies, which is, I mean, essentially every league is sort of different from themselves and how that relates to scoring in the NHL when they first kind of come in. So, you know, the OHL is different from the QMJHL, which is different from NCAA, which is different from all the Euro leagues, right? So everything right. sort of has their own translation of how, you know, a point, what a point is worth in the OHL versus, you know, a pro league in Europe. And this is based on, you know, years of data going back to, well, my tool goes back to 1990. So it's looking at sort of the averages of everybody that's come into the NHL in their first year and sort of translating what they scored in the other league and now into the NHL and how that sort of translates to a score. And it's taking those scores and, you know, using age adjustments and looking at all the players on the same level playing field to see essentially what players look like over the past 30 years of history. And what you find is is you know the ones that turn into superstars often um they have a very distinct pattern like they're basically they're really high scores from the beginning they're high scores when they're 16 17 and they're high scores in their draft year and then they just kind of go up from there whereas you know the guys that turn into the superstars in the nhl that were super low scoring in say their draft year are very very rare so it's basically quantifying all this information and putting it all on the same level playing field so you can view it all through the same lens and you can view all these players you know i think there's about seven thousand players in the database now and you can see you know what this guy looks like and his chances of turning into a star based on all this history and also who he compares to so you know you can you can look through the comparables now and you can see like okay this guy has 15 comparables and you know, you think this guy is going to be a superstar, but you look through his 15 comparables and none of them have turned into stars. So if this guy turns into a star, he's going to be an outlier. Whereas you choose a different player and you see that, you know, he has 10 comparables and nine of them have turned into stars. This guy's sitting in a pretty good group. So that's basically what it's trying to do is, is take this historical data and put it into a framework where you can look at it and see 
when a player looks like this, this is what tends to happen over the course of his NHL career. And when a player looks like, you know, this, this is what happens. So that's, that's basically what it's doing. It's just a, a tool to quantify all these prospects and these players to, you know, really see what everybody who's come through the league or been drafted in the last 30 years that looks exactly like that, what tends to be the result. So you can sort of adjust your expectations of, you know, as a, as a hockey ops person, like what did we just draft or just as a fan, like who's the guy we just drafted and and what does he look like? Does he have some massive star potential or is this guy, you know, very unlikely to make the NHL or is this guy basically look like, you know, he'd probably make the NHL, but probably just in kind of like a middle or depth role, that type of thing. So that's basically what it's doing in, uh, in large form. And Byron's model defines a star as a play for a forward as someone that recorded 0.7 points per game through a career. And then for a defenseman, it's 0.45 points plus. And then an NHLer is defined as 200 plus games. So just quickly here, what are some of those, before we get into a couple of guys I wanted to highlight, what are some of the strengths and the weaknesses of the model's output? Because we should put that disclaimer out there at the forefront before we start kind of gauging people's tracks and their probabilities and whatnot yeah so i mean the major strength is i'd say it's very good at identifying you know those those game breaking superstar star type players um early on before they've even played an nhl game quite often um that's kind of its its big strength and 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 why it's used i guess i mean the the weakness from the other side is is it's not very good at at figuring out like those really defensive, you know, strong possession forwards that kind of pop a little bit later on because they sort of fall into this group where most of them don't make the NHL, but then there's a certain subsection of them that are, you know, the defensive defensemen, like the Chris Tanev type thing, or like the Blake Coleman, who they don't look great in this type of model. They don't look like they're going to be a star and they aren't stars how I define them, but like, they're just so good defensively. So it's, it's hard to pick up those. It's, it's not as good as picking up those, but I mean, in most cases, even a player that makes the NHL, but isn't a star, but is just a really impactful player in, you know, I'd say eight out of 10, nine out of 10 cases, like they dominate their peers to some degree in their feeder leagues when they're kind of coming up when they're getting drafted and just after getting drafted. So most of the time it applies, whereas there's a certain subsection where, um, you know, they, they might pop a little bit later and then it, it kind of doesn't pick up on that type of thing. But yeah. The first one I wanted to get to is Marco Rossi, a player that, you know, he started the year out in Minnesota this year, 16 games, notch one assist, went down to Iowa this year. He's got 30 points in 33 games. He was a ninth overall pick in 2020. I know he was someone you were quite high on at the time during the draft went between Jack Quinn and Cole Perfetti highly regarded player your model right now as it stands has Marco Rossi pegged at in the middle of his draft year plus three season with a 63% star probability what are your thoughts on on, on Marco Rossi's development his development track and, and where you see him as an, as an asset yeah I mean when Rossi was drafted like he just had this very elite profile like i would call it just a step behind sort of like 
the generational talent profile, you know, how Crosby look and McDavid and Connor Bedard look like it was just a step below that. And not many players look like this. And most of them that do, they turn into stars. You have like Dale Howardchuk and Eric Lindros and Pierre Turgeon and, and these types of players. Like it's a pretty rare profile, but most of them, you know, four out of five turn into stars. So his starting point is so high that the model just kind of gives him you know, the benefit of the doubt that he's going to turn into a star. And then when you look at what's happened since the draft, I mean, he loses his D plus one year because he gets this sort of long COVID issue and he can't play at all. So basically the model sees that. And the way I have it in the model now is it doesn't drop you, but it, it doesn't, it doesn't boost you or it doesn't drop you. It kind of keeps you the same. Um, and so that's why he kind of remains at the same spot. And then, you know, his production after that is, is still pretty good. I mean, he was in the AHL last year and his production was very good. It was right along the lines, what you should expect. And then with the model, I should mention that if they play in multiple leagues, so long as they play like a decent sample in both leagues, Mm -hmm. I take where they kind of showed best. So obviously his NHL sample, pretty small and he didn't really do much, but now he's back in the AHL and he's doing fine. You know, he's a point per game guy in the AHL, still pretty young. So he's not, he's not falling off. He's not, you know, hitting some super low totals that his star probability would just like fall apart. So he still looks really good. And there's so few players that look like that. And I mean, it's, it's heavily weighted on, on what he did in his pre-draft year and in his draft year. But, you know, you look at players that kind of look like him that maybe didn't immediately emerge as NHL superstars, like, you know, like a guy like Brian Rolston, or Daniel Briere, they look very similar, but it took them a few years. You know, it took them till their mid twenties before they really started to cook, and then they they turned into pretty good players. You know, in Briere's case, he became a star, but it wasn't until kind of his late twenties, and then he sort of really took off, um, kind of in those Buffalo days. So, I mean, that's that's basically why why it still likes him and and why he's still so highly rated. He he hasn't really fallen off, and it's such a rare profile, and most of these guys turn into stars. So. I still have hope for Rossi. I think he's going to still come in eventually. I don't know if it'll be next year or the year after, but, you know, he's a small guy. He's dealing with this, this random, you know, long COVID thing, which took him out for a whole year, which is a very, you know, nuanced one-off event type thing. But I think he'll, he'll still, you know, figure it out and, and become a star or something close to it in the NHL. Another guy from that draft class that, you know, you mean this guy might be my favorite from there, just from a purely eye test standpoint. That's Lucas Reichel, 17th overall pick in 2020. He's right now in his draft year plus three, pegged at a 25% chance of being a star. Now, you know, we're going from Rossi, who's at just above 60%, to Reichel, and it might seem like a massive drop off, but I would say that's more a testament to Rossi being kind of that elite, close to elite class, and, and Reichel being in kind of the you know, lottery of could be a star, could not be like where, what should we think about Reichel's trajectory? Yeah. I mean, a 25% star probability sounds low, but most players that are drafted don't turn into stars. It's only about three or 4%. Right. So, I mean, it's, it's still pretty high. Like you still have kind of like a one in four chance that he turns into a star. So he's still kind of, you know, in like the 95th, 97th percentile in terms of star probability for all players drafted because, you know, from any given draft by the end of their D plus three season, you maybe have five to seven players that have kind of like a 50% or more 
star probability in any given draft. So, I mean, he's probably, yeah, from that draft, I would guess he's probably like, you know, ninth or 10th star probability still right up there. So, I mean, I think he's going to, he's going to be a good player. I, I saw a little sample of him when he was in the NHL and uh, saw a couple games and like, he looked like he was just starting to figure it out and Chicago put him back because they probably don't want to lose out on any of those lottery spots. So um, yeah, I mean, he's, he's still way up there and 25% after your D plus three is still a pretty high number. Um, and there's still a chance there. Absolutely. I should also mention a 78% chance of becoming an NHLer the model has. All right, let's go to Atu Ratu. So now he's with Vancouver, traded from the Islanders. We talked about him on the podcast, I think it was two episodes ago. He Here's where we need your translation, Byron, because you look at your model, and Atu Ratu is a 0% probability of becoming a star. I saw your thread the other night about explaining the 0% element of it in general. But but also, just why does Atu Ratu have such a like a near zero percent star probability what goes into that so i mean the big thing with him is you look at his draft year and he had super super low production i think in the league league mostly um and it was like an equivalently below 10 and when you look at every single forward uh drafted in the last 30 years that has recorded an equivalency of essentially less than 10 from their draft year to their D plus three years, not one single one of those guys has ever become a star. There's there's one that is emerging right now, and it's kind of got a caveat on it, is Drake Batherson. He's the only one who's ever done that. And even him, he had a equivalency of like eight or nine or something in his draft year, but he only played like, I think, 10 to 12 games in the queue in his first eligible draft year. So it's a really tiny sample if he got you know, 20, 30 games, he probably would have boosted that into the teens somewhere. So that, I mean, you're looking at hundreds, possibly thousands of players that have hit an equivalency that low. And normally these guys are, you know, uh, these low producing guys that go in the late rounds, mostly huge guys, right? And when you look, none of those have ever turned into a star. So right away, the model sees that and says, okay, we're looking at you know, zero out of 500. So it just automatically, the chances are so low that it just makes it down to zero. And there's basically no coming out of that, no matter what he does, because nobody has ever done that. So that's why he has a zero probability of becoming a star. But let me ask you a question. We talked about this to start about how this tool gives you a great macro perspective. But when you look at it, do you think it's still like it, when you see that, is that in your mind something like, OK, like this is a huge red flag or it's just another kind of angle of it? And, you know, you can't really judge a player by that because of the other factors. Like, I, I would think that that would be a huge red flag. Like when you're looking at drafting this guy. Yeah. Were you yeah, I mean, for him recently? Yeah, I mean, I would. That's exactly how I would look at it, because, I mean, he he had this sort of. Uh, what's, what's the word? Like he was, he was highly regarded for years. Like he was thought of, you know, he could go first overall or in the top three in that draft, but he really fell off. And then he ends up a second round pick. And then it's kind of thought of, Oh, like what a steal you got this guy. And he, he had, he had a nice bump up season in his D plus one year. But you know, when you're looking at the data, like I do, and you see that, you know, no, but like if you're drafting a guy like that, like you want him to turn into 
a top six forward. Like, mm-hmm. you know, this guy's supposed to be a first round talent. You want him to, to, to turn into that. So when you see that nobody has ever turned into a star that starts off with, with an equivalency that low, like no matter what, like that's a red flag for me. That's not a player that I would probably be pursuing in a trade, but mm-hmm. you know, you're hoping for these other intangibles to kind of come out of it and, you know, for him to be the outlier and, and beat this, beat this out. But you're looking at 30 years of history and, and, you know, besides Batherson, nobody's ever done that. So it's not something that I'd be betting on, especially if you're hoping that he turns into, you know, that, that top six star for your team, that's going to be a driving piece and not just, you know, not just a guy, I guess. Let's ask, there's two more things you want to get to. And again, Byron, thank you so much for joining us. This is awesome insight. David Yerichek, a player that in his draft year, you know, this last year, he's a draft year plus one, drafted six overall, had a 17% chance being a star when he was drafted. Now in the middle or, you know, two thirds into his draft year plus one year, he's got a 34% chance of being a star. What do you remember from, from the way you looked at Yerichek in his draft year? And what do you make of his overall profile? Yeah, I mean, basically, I like Yersek. It's you know, especially you know, playing that much that early in in the pro Euro circuit. Like that's most of those guys make the NHL anyways. So I I liked him for that. And then in terms of you know his star probability, like it, it basically it comes down to what he what he what he did in his draft year and his pre draft year. And when you look at all the guys that look like that, it's like you know, one out of five, two out of five of those guys turn into stars. So what he's doing now, he's basically doing like everything he can to increase his star probability. Really. There's nothing more he could be doing in this season in the HL. He's like almost like a point per game guy in the HL, but it's just basically looking back at, you know, his starting point from the draft and then factoring in this year. And that's why he's at, you know, 35% right now and not like something like 80 or 90% because it's factoring in, what happened in those previous years. And when you look right. back at history, like I said, it's only like one out of five, two out of five turn into stars. But if he keeps on with this trajectory, like let's say he goes back to the AHL next year and he does the same thing, he's going to shoot up even more and even more. Like a guy that kind of looks like that is Adam Fox. Like he looked mm-hmm. almost identical in the draft in his draft year. And then he just had these monstrous um, college seasons, like three back to back to back. So if Yurisek does something like that, he's going to, shoot up and he's going to look very similar to a guy like Adam Fox, who's obviously come in and been one of the best defensemen in the NHL. So it's, yeah, it's basically based on what happened in his draft year and, and what tends to happen with those players, but he's doing, there's, he keep could not score more and show higher in the model. He's basically like maxed out. Like he's right at the top of the, 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 the chart in terms of how, you know, I group them and rank them and stuff. So it's, it's just about more consistency and putting together a couple seasons like that. And then he'll really shoot up. So last one I want to ask you is I know you paid, like you pay somewhat attention to how once they're out of that draft year plus three, how those guys progress, right? Like you'll keep tabs on guys in year four and five. What do you make of, you know, Ty Smith coming down and he had a high star probability um, in the model coming down the HL and then Phil Tomasino as well over, you know, the, the, the model's history, is that, like, for me, I think that's weird. I never see that. But is that something that's more common maybe than I would think? Or is it a rarity when you see that sort of jump down at that point? No, I'd say it's it's pretty rare. Like, especially in their circumstances, like, they both 
you know, essentially make the NHL by their D plus three season, I believe. So, you know, they're right within that, that five-year track that I'm looking at them. So when a player basically plays the majority of the season in the AHL and they do well within that, like their, their chances of making the NHL, obviously, because they're already in the NHL at that point, shoot up massively. And so it's pretty rare that they don't, that a player like that, like doesn't make 200 games. And I'm sure these guys still will, but maybe it just takes a while, but also like those two specifically, like they're not just guys that like made the NHL, but they're like super low producers or something. And then they kind of get this massive boost because they get put into the NHL and sort of a defensive role. Like when you look at guys that show really well in the model and are high producers like that early on, like Ty Smith was, you know, as of his draft year and Tomasino kind of more so his D plus one year, like, and then they make the NHL by their D plus three season. Like those guys always, almost always cross over 200 games and a lot of them turn into stars. So it's kind of interesting to see them jump around a little bit like this. Uh, You know, I'm sure it's happened over the decades, but I'd say it's pretty rare. Like it's probably like a one in 20, one in 30 type type thing. Normally they would just stick in the NHL and, and that's that, right? So it is kind of interesting. So I'm curious what happens with those two. Absolutely. Byron Bader here from hockeyprospecting.com. If you want to check out the cards and all the data, be sure to subscribe to it. It's a great tool. I, I love using it. It's obviously not you know the only thing you should use when assessing a prospect, but it's a very valuable one in understanding the macro picture of things. And it, it's really fun to do. So again, Byron, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks again to Byron Bader for coming on. Awesome to get that insight and get a look at the macro, you know, probabilities and whatnot of, of a lot of the prospects we discussed. But now I'm going to trade Byron for a conditional first, and that is Pat Williams. P. Well, what's going on, man? <laughs> yeah, conditional, right? Yeah. Uh, good, good. How are you? Um, uh, it was a busy weekend, you know, like with the with the long weekend, you know, schedule wise, you know, kind of it. it Teams really squeeze in a lot of those games on holiday weekends, right? So, you know, you had a lot of games pushed into Monday, like the Marlies and Utica. So, um, you know, I think teams are just sort of getting uh, back on the, the, you know, back on track here after, you know, playing, you know, three and four or three and five. So uh, it's going to be another busy week coming up for a lot of teams here. And then that runs right in almost into the NHL trade deadline as well. For sure. I always, yeah, I always, the one thing I don't like about the league, and I'm sure, a lot of people agree um, is there's so many games kind of mesh all together. It's hard to kind of keep track. And so if you, if you keep your eye off it for like three days, it's like you missed a quarter of the season. It feels like it's pretty congested in that way sometimes. Yeah. It's the nature of, uh, you know, weekend dates, right? Like those are the ones that put the, the people in the buildings, uh, which I'll pay for it all. So, you know, it's just, uh, you know, yeah. In an ideal world, um, you would, have more of a staggered but uh you know it does put players through the paces too so they have to you know do you do learn how to really take on that kind of schedule that's what i think that's why i think the second half is such a great test for young players because especially guys coming out of college now you're you're playing 35 to 40 in college and now you're playing a full 72 um and that's largely kind of uh backloaded so you know that's before you even get to the playoffs so i think that's what's such a good litmus test for a lot of these young players to see how they handle that and how they adapt to it. You know, the other day I, I was looking at, I was watching a Marley's game and I watched Bobby McMahon just, it was like he was shot out of the cannon 
he mm-hmm. was blistering with speed. He's got a great shot, honestly, too. And I kind of got a bit of deja vu. And th- these two players I'm going to compare, they're, they're not the same player, but the development path is quite the same. And that's with Trevor Moore. You know, I was on the Marlies beat when this happened, where yeah. Trevor Moore, undrafted, Leafs found him, brought him into the development program. And, you know, for whatever reason, with all these, both both those two players have had great speed, whatever the deficiencies they had, they worked on. And now you're looking at a case where Bobby McMahon is getting red hot in the second half of the year. He's got six goals in his last four games, nine in the past seven. And the comparison of Moore is when in, in Moore's, you know, final year with the Marlies, he got red hot too in that, or not final year, sorry, the year they made the Calder Cup run. So his second pro year. He also got red hot in the second half, and then he went on to score 17 points in 20 games in the playoffs. And I think Bobby McMahon for the Marlies is going to be a huge piece, but I'd go a step further to say this is a guy that very well could become a black ace for the Leafs and, and could get into lineup, whether injury or not. You know, I, th- I think Bobby McMahon is, is you know, he's 26 years old, and I think there's a, a lot of reasons to maybe write him off or, or discount him. But as a depth piece, I mean, I'm a huge proponent of Bobby McMahon. And, and, starting from when he had a great camp this year to now guys on a tear. I mean, I've got a lot of time for that player. And I think the Leafs do too. Um, every good team has several players like that guys with the, that, that motor that just has an extra gear in it. And he's, he fits that to a T right. Um, a great story. I mean, played junior a went to four years of uh, school at Colgate comes out during the, I mean, what a year to come out and turn pro the pandemic season when the rosters were so, so jumbled up and, you know, you had players kind of coming in from everywhere. Um, it was very easy to get lost in the shuffle. I think to his credit, he, he did manage to stay, um, you know, a fairly regular presence in the Marlies lineup that year. Um, even though the production wasn't there, you know, he established himself, got some of those good pro habits down. And then last year was able to really take that and run with it. And, and the production followed. And, and now this year, it's that third year for, for you see for a lot of players where everything just comes together. That first year is just getting the infra, you know the foundation, the infrastructure in place. Second, you add, you add some of that offensive ability, and then the third, you kind of you know take off. And I think that's exactly what he's done. And um, yeah, I think uh, I mean the Marlies are poised to make a good run themselves. But if, if they weren't, I think yeah, uh, I'd be shocked if he wasn't a black ace with the Leafs in that case because. Um, you know, he's a guy I think you could put in the lineup if you had to, and you, you could feel that you you could feel secure that he he would be responsible and handle exactly that pressure well. Like I, I would say that I'm pretty convinced that he's surpassed an Alex Steves on the depth chart, and like Steves was was serviceable and fine in those moments, but I think you get a lot more from McMahon, and for a team like Toronto where you know they, they just traded Abramov and, and got at some depth. Um, in the O'Reilly deal, which of course you mean, you're not going to play twice with an opportunity like that, but for a Bob McMahon to be emerging and taking the steps he is, it's great for them because you know, they're the bottom six has been a problem for the Leafs all year. And I think a guy like McMahon, he was in the lineup, like I watched every one of those games for my money, he, he, was, he was a good fourth line. I think he a lot of teams will be looking at him in the offseason or, or whatever it may be, um, to get him in there. But it's funny, so just quickly before I move on, I'm curious. Usually do like if if a team is I'm sure you would know this because I think Hershey and Washington have a situation where both teams are making a run. Does the, the NHL team take less black aces or is that short sighted? They still take uh, the guys they need with them. 
Yeah, generally speaking, um, you'll let your players stay in the AHL, get that playoff experience now. Like I think, for example, 2019 was Charlotte and Carolina. Carolina was in the playoffs. Charlotte ended up winning the whole the whole thing, the Calder Cup that year. Right. Um, for the first couple rounds, uh, it was Djokovic w- w- would go up and down a little bit. Um, sometimes if if Carolina needed a third goalie, um, either for practice or for what have you, uh, Patrick Brown was one as well. Um, and then, you know, but once once the Hurricanes uh, went out, uh, I believe that was after the second round that year, um, they went down to Charlotte full time. But, but in the meantime, they were getting some games in, so. Um, I think anytime you can have players playing playoff hockey at any level rather than um, you know sitting there as a black ace, I think that's ideal. Especially, I mean, for the Leafs and Marlies, I mean, you know, it's such an easy transition to move a player back and forth. Right. Um, that, and it really, that's the case with most teams now. Um, and that was a big reason why, you know, we, we saw the, the complete reshuffling of the league over the last 10 years was to make those logistics easier. So I, I think – you, you would leave them there with the Marlies as long as they were playing. Uh, if you did need them to come up for some reason to the Leafs, you could. But then, you know, if and when the Marlies go out before the Leafs, then you bring them up and you probably bring a whole bunch of them up. But with Carolina in 2019, who were the Black Aces? Because it wasn't Paul Dorowski. It wasn't those. So who was it? Well, you know, uh, I'm trying to think back. Uh, you know, some extras with um, – with the Hurricanes, you know, they carry, what, so 23, so, you know, you're just, you know, so three guys extra, um, you know, and then you kind of just maybe pull a guy up here for a day or two, another sure. guy for a day or two. Right. Um, but, um, yeah, for the most part, um, you don't need a huge group of black aces. You, you kind of pull them up as needed. And then there, it's only after the AHL team goes goes home for the summer that you then see that big group come up, you know, the – yeah, five to ten players, you know, that almost kind of become like a taxi squad. You know, taxi squad, for sure. Let's go over to our prospect of the week, and that's William Eklund of the San Jose Barracuda, seventh overall pick in twenty twenty one. He's got seventeen goals, twenty four assists, and forty one points in fifty games. His first twenty five games of the year, he had sixteen points, and now in the back half of his twenty five games, he's got twenty five points at a point per game pace through the second half of the season. Really interesting call by by San Jose. Like have him there in the AHL. I think it's the right call and one that you're seeing more and more now. As we talk about a nauseam on the show with European players and, and prospects, but Eklund's really progressing at, at a great rate. And for a team like San Jose, that surely is about to you know lose a lot of their personnel with the deadline and whatnot. And this is their next wave. Eklund is certainly at the forefront of that next regime. That will be one of the interesting questions, depending on how much the Sharks take apart that roster in the next, uh, you know, nine days. Right. Does that, uh, well, I would open opportunity up top for guys like Eklund and Bordelow and some other players. But do you um, do it? Do you do it? Or do you decide, let's keep them in, in the AHL. Let's let them play top minutes. Let's let them really have that confidence. Let's let them be in a playoff race. Right. Let's let him ideally get into the playoffs uh, you know, th- there's pros and cons to both. And, you know, certainly teams have taken both approaches through the years. The other option for the Sharks is you just kind of bring in, you know, you know, some, some older veterans in return, you know, who did, who can play out the string at the NHL level and you leave them alone in the AHL. So that, that will be an interesting um, decision, I think, for Mike Greer, 
the GM there in San Jose and really see where they go. I love Eklund's game so far for a 20 year old. And I agree if you bring him over here, get him into the, the North American system early, get your, get your development coaches working with him every single day. Um, they, I mean, they share a practice rink with the, with the, with the sharps. <laughs> so you can't get uh, much right. better access than that, but uh, um, love his vision, love his work ethic right off the bat. And I think that's um, really showing now in the production now picking up as well. How far away is he from being an NHL player? Oh, I think next year he'll be up there. I, you know, like he protects the puck really well. I think, God, you know, maybe people don't totally recognize that. I mean, he's not a big guy, right? He's only like 5'11-ish, mm-hmm. 185, if that, right? But but really great on the cutbacks. Uh, he, and he's, he's quick, but he also, he darts well, right? Like, you know, he'll go kind of in and out of the traffic, um, handles the puck great. Um, the other thing I really like about him um, is he doesn't tip off passes either, uh, you know, making the pass or receiving it, you know, and I think that's sometimes maybe a, a little bit of an underrated skill uh, for young players. Um, but, you know, if, obviously if you're going to play in the NHL, right, like uh, any defender in the NHL, they, they can pick apart another player's game. Uh, so, so you don't want to be certainly tipping anything off. So it's, it's hard to do. You know, like especially for a young player coming over here and kind of learning a much more scrambly AHL style system. But, um, you know, I think that's been a nice part of his game as well. Our team of the week this week is the Pittsburgh Penguins, who we talked about how San Jose could be a team with a lot different personnel after the, the deadline in nine days. I think Pittsburgh wants to be a different team and wants to add pieces, but it's not much in the cupboards right now with them. And, and as we kind of talked about off the air, Pat, it's a byproduct of, of being contender for so long and for trading your first year after year and even the seconds, the thirds for support pieces for your cup run. So that's kind of where Wilkes-Barre's at. Um, it, it's a group that is it's pretty thin, especially in the AHL and, you know, with respect to guys that are closer to being impact players. Yeah, you think back to like the some of the top teams of the, you know, the late 2000s, 2010s, right? Detroit, Chicago. San Jose, Pittsburgh, um, those clubs, they all, they've all either gone through it or are going through it or probably will be going through um, that descent after some of the, you know, the core players retire, move on. And yeah, you haven't had that, that influx of young talent that you need in the cap world. Um, And that's just, you know what, you know, it's the old thing. Nobody would trade a Stanley cup. (laughs) you know, for, for, for sure anything. Right. So it's, it's the price you pay now in the cap era, but it it is a challenge. uh, And they are obviously, yeah, a little bit thin. uh, Just all those, all those trades catch up with you eventually. I mean, that's what I think makes it that much more imperative that what you do have, you, you convert into an NHL player. So um, there are pieces there. It's just that it's, it's obviously not going to be as deep as what some other uh, some other NHL clubs would have down in the AHL. I think at, from zooming out a bit, you would think they could dangle Ty Smith, but you know the way that well, there's two. It's twofold. One, Ty Smith, the, the year he's had hasn't been a good year. He went down the AHL, came back up, but wasn't able to stick. I think those issues are still there. The warts are still apparent, so you, you you're likely not going to get. Not only a good return, but also, you know, you trade him for John Marino, um, or acquired him for John Marino, sorry, um, 
the offseason. So they're probably will we'll see that through. I don't know. I, I mean, again, we mentioned it, it's a, it's a thin cupboard, but let's say Ron Hextall says, I want to go out and I want to acquire a player in whatever way it is. Who are some guys, Pat, that, that he has in his holster? Uh, maybe, maybe not the most highly regarded, but, but what's, what's in the cupboard? I know we have to go grocery shopping, but what's, what's there to eat? <laughs> yeah. So I would start right off the bat with, uh, you know, and I love uh, Val Pustin and um, seventh round pick. Um, and I love when you, you can hit on some of those players um, he came over, he was already very well trained, very well experienced, you know, playing over in Finland, uh, top league there. So, I mean, you're playing against, uh, you know, real experienced pros on a very technically oriented league. So when he came over, he had a lot of the, those defensive elements in his game already pretty down pat. So, um, I don't think I quite gave him enough credit for really like the offensive impact he'd have came in last year, put up 20 goals, which is great. Right. You know, like, I mean, you can get a seventh rounder to come in his first year in North America and do that. Mm -hmm. Who wouldn't take that? And this year now he's even duplicated that and he matched that, you know, in what 49 games. So, I mean, he's well on pace now. If you play a full year, push 30 goals. So I think he would be a very attractive piece. If, if, if you're another club, uh, if, sorry, if I was another GM, I'd be uh, making that phone call. If uh, Pittsburgh wants to deal, uh, Philip Hollander, kind of a, a similar player in, in terms of mm -hmm. background. Uh, he was a second rounder, uh, but um, you know, well-trained, obviously, coming over the Swedish Hockey League, probably, the, I would say, the top league in, in Europe. Um, obviously, he had a little bit of injury issues this year. Uh, he had that, that scary injury last month. Uh, he's come back from that, which is great to see. Um, you know, So he's, he's kind of back on track here, uh, only 22 years old. Um, so, uh, those would be the kind of the two pieces. Uh, I find Philip Lindbergh is an interesting case just as a young goalie. Um, you know, he had such a tough year last year with the injuries, right? Like only seven games. Um, interesting player though. He came over the, the college path, played at UMass Amherst. Absolutely phenomenal there. Another seventh rounder, um, came in with, with some definite, uh, hype surrounding him um those injuries i mean set you back i still think there's something there but sure um you know i might take a chance on him if he was a, if he was out there and you know young you know and i would certainly wouldn't uh you know you know make him the centerpiece of any deal but certainly if you could add him in that if you're pittsburgh you might be able to maybe tip the scales it'd be interesting to see i think those are definitely some of the players that would be probably moved in ideal. They're not going to move Owen Pickering, the top prospect in the WHL. It'd probably be one of those couple names. Um, so, you know, stay tuned for that. And for today's show, that's, uh, that's it for us. Well, uh, thanks again to Byron for coming on and for Pat for subbing in there, a little six man off the bench uh, switcheroo there. Thank you everyone for listening. Jacob Stoller, Patrick Williams, as always, we thank you for listening and yeah, all the best. We'll see you next time.